Welcome to another episode of the MMA Lockcast. I'm your host, Manpreet, aka MMA Lock of the Night, and your boy on social media at MMALOTN. Also, the architect behind the MMA Fight Archive. If you're looking for a database to go out there and do research on these upcoming events, but not just the UFC, Bellator, PFL, KSW, ACA, CFFC, uh, Cage Warriors, if I didn't already say that, this weekend alone, we got Cage Warriors, KSW, and CFFC. You can find direct links for all of those opponents' past fights or competitors' past fights on this MMA Fight Archive. We have over 2,500 fighter profiles on there currently, over 55 subscribers as well, closing in on that 60 subscriber mark as well. And you can try it out all for free, seven-day free trial, link available in the description below. Find out why the top commentators, cappers, coaches, and fighters in the community utilize this service to ensure they leave no stone unturned when they're doing the research, breaking down fights, or preparing for upcoming opponents. Again, check it out, MMA Fighter archive seven day free trial link in the description below all right this week we're going over ufc vegas 81 which is headlined by by a matchup between sadiq yusuf and edson barboza very intriguing matchup there i believe in the featherweight division where we're going to be having yusuf coming into his first ever main event slot after sitting on the sidelines for over a year and then on the flip side for barboza looking to um uh, volley off of that victory that he had over Billy Quarantillo earlier this year and try to get a winning streak going. A uh, couple other intriguing matchups sprinkled out throughout the card. In the Coleman event, we obviously have Jennifer Maya going up against Viviani Araujo uh, and a couple new debutants that I'm excited about to talk about with you guys uh, as well. Before we get into that, we always do the prediction uh, pr- uh, recap of the last event, at least Lock Night and Dog of the Night predictions. So Lock Night. I took the I took the heavy chalk here. You know, I really didn't think that Bobby Green would have been able to pull off the victory the way that he did. I thought if he did, it will probably come via late KO. But it took him less than thirty seconds to get Grant Dawson out of there. I take an L there, but. We had some couple dubs on the regional scene as well as the contender series. So that brings our lock of the night prediction record for the year to 87 and 29 for a 75% hitting rate. Very happy about that. Dog of the night comes through. The first 50 to 60% of that card was great for us. We were killing all of it besides that weird decision with the Kanako Murata and Vanessa Demopoulos fight. But my dog was the first fight of the night. And J.J. Aldrich actually comes through as a plus 125 underdog, absolutely battering uh, Montana De La Rosa over 15 minutes and getting her hand raised by decision. That brings our dog of the night record now to 48 and 68 on the year for a 41% hit rate. If you're looking for the exact numbers on the units and ROI and all that, you can check out the the top three dog of the night candidates uh, video that I'll be dropping for you guys later on tonight. So keep your eyes peeled for that. If you're looking forward to Cage Warriors this weekend, I do do breakdowns for those guys, but not to the public, strictly to the Patreon folks. So if you want to get uh, inside information, well, not inside information, but uh, information in regarding to how I'm feeling about all those 11 matchups that we got coming up for Cage Warriors Dublin. You can find that strictly on the Patreon page. Check for that and the link in the description below. Lock of the Night Patreon, not the MMA Fight Archive Patreon. So you can find written breakdowns of every single one of those matchups and where I'm leaning, what I'll be playing, and uh, a best hedge opportunities as well if you're looking for that. And then lastly, shout out to the Godzilla Wins folks where I post... um, 
written articles on a weekly basis for them, two articles a week. Wednesdays, we normally drop the main event article where I break down the main event and then the three best money line spots uh, that I drop on Thursdays as well. So uh, once those are posted, you'll find those in the description below as well. Make sure you guys support those guys. And if it's not just the UFC that you're looking at, they have you covered for all other sports as well. They're really going hard with the NFL content this year. Uh, so make sure you guys check that out as well. They got a lot of great cappers over there. All right. Let's not waste any further time. Let's get right into the breakdowns. We got 11 fights, I believe, or 12 fights that we're going through for this card. We'll start off with the first fight of the night, which goes down in the strawweight division between the returning Ashley Yoder as she goes up against Emily Ducati. We'll start off on the Yoder side, who's on a two-fight losing streak. She's one in four in her last five fights, and she's coming off of a two-year-long layoff. Apparently, she had soldier, two sh shoulder surgeries that she had to go through and was apparently ready to start taking a fight as early as April this year, but the UFC has shelved her and eventually gotten her this matchup to throw down this weekend. She's normally long, rangy, 5'7", uh, 69-inch reach. Very difficult for a lot of opponents to get to her, but if they're able to bite down on their mouthpiece and get in on the inside, there are they are able to land on her, just as Jin Fry was able to, and I believe it was a closely contested fight in terms of the amount of significant strikes landed, but it was clear that Fry was the one landing more uh, significantly, and that's what the judges ended up uh, scoring in her favor. Yoder is also a BJJ black belt, but she seems to be more effective when she's able to be the fighter on top of her opponent rather than doing work off of her back um her striking just doesn't leave a lot to be desired which is why that ducati is as favored as she is in this matchup i believe she's closing in on minus 400 at this point in time i believe she can use a similar approach to what she did against jessica penne in her ufc debut where she was able to chop away at the lead leg of the longer and lankier opponent and then let her hands do the talking after that she's running through some tough times over her last couple of fights coming up short against angela hill and lopita godinez but i feel like yoder is of the level of jessica penne and we should see Ducati go out there and get her a hand raised once again and get back on the winning track. You know, she's still only 29 years old. She has 20 fights of experience under her belt as well, not to mention competing for a Bellator title a couple of times. And she's had some good competition on the regional scene. She is ready for the UFC. She is UFC worthy, but we know what her ceiling is. You know, it's the Angela Hills of the world. She'll, she probably won't be able to crack the top 10 of this division, but she should be able to exchange wins and losses enough to maintain her UFC roster spot for an extended period of time. So I'm going to go Ducati and Ducati by decision. Look for her to utilize her calf kicking approach to slow down uh, Yoder and then open up with their hands after that and win this fight by decision. Possible KO probable as well. So I'm not going to take the uh, Ducati via decision here. I, I might just end up parlaying her um, in a couple of spots and utilizing her money line to take advantage of that. All right. Next up, we got a bantamweight matchup between Chris Gutierrez going up against Alatang Hali. Starting off on the Gutierrez side, he got his winning streak halted last time around by tough out Pedro Munoz. Munoz went out there and just laid shit kicking on Gutierrez over 15 minutes, utilizing his leg kicks and his power striking approach to really thwart the calf kicking game of Gutierrez. Normally, Gutierrez goes out there and just batters the lead leg of his opponents and then opens up with his hands afterwards, out striking them, out pointing them, and more often than not going out there and winning by decision. But I feel like he's going to struggle in terms of going up against a guy like Alatang Ali, who is making improvements. You know, Gutierrez 
big favorite in this spot. I don't completely understand it. We did see a lot of money come in on the uh, Alateng Ali side to bring his money line down a little bit, but he can still be had around that plus 240 range, at least at the time of this recording. Again, Gutierrez has typically shown good enough takedown defense to keep this fight in the striking realm, but he usually finds it difficult, just like he did against Munoz, to fight guys or at least get off on his game against guys that are going to be constantly pressuring him, constantly moving forward and looking to get him out of there. I don't think Alatang Hali finishes him, but he comes from a fight writing trading camp that normally utilizes a calf kicking approach in their matchups. And I feel like they should have a good enough game plan to shut down that side of Gutierrez's game and then go out there and utilize his hands, forward movement, and punish Gutierrez on the feet. Alatang Hali came into the UFC strictly as a wrestler, winning his first two fights with a combined seven takedowns. However, over his last couple of fights, he's been showing off that he has some hands, knocking out Kevin Kroom as quickly as he did, and then most recently outpointing Chad and Helliger on the feet, and then landing a couple takedowns at the end of those rounds just to ensure that he secured them. But I love his improvements. At 31 years old, he's showcasing the best version of himself, and I believe plus 240 is way too disrespectful in a matchup between two guys that are relatively of the same level. You know, I know Gutierrez had a great winning streak, but let's face the facts, the guys that he's beating no longer in the UFC or they are retired, right? Just in his five, last five fights, Andre Ewell, cut. Felipe Collarsh, RIP. Uh, and I mean that with all due respect. Uh, Batkaril Dana, not in the UFC anymore. Frankie Edgar, there was the ghost of Frankie Edgar, and I believe that was Edgar's retirement fight as well. I believe Alatang Hali is more than capable of pulling off the upside here, and I'm going to take him to win this fight. I believe I took him by decision, but plus 240, just take the money line, and I feel like we can get a good enough value spot there. All right, next up in the bantamweight division, we got Arene Alexiva going up against Melissa Dixon. Alexiva had a successful UFC debut, although she missed weight pretty egregiously against Stephanie Egger. She still went out there and got a knee bar victory after putting the pressure on Egger with her punches, forcing that takedown out of Egger. But we saw Alexiva roll to that knee bar and take that on home with her. At 33 years old, I really don't think that Alexiva is that good. She's only 5 and 1. She didn't have a winning streak of any sort coming into the UFC. So she was a surprising uh, pickup, uh, first of all. Uh, and then the fact that she's missed weight in three of her six professional fights does not seem like a UFC fighter to me. But it's clear she likes to fight. She likes to throw down in the pocket. A little bit too wild with her striking at times, which will make her pay, uh, or sorry, uh, which will make her suffer against fighters that are way better technical strikers who. If she has a couple more wins in the UFC, she'll eventually face them and then realize, oh shit, I'm in over my head here. Um, but she's kind of strong. She utilizes her judo background pretty decently. But I think she has a sketchy gas tank. And I just don't think that she's UFC level. On the flip side, for the 5-0 and Melissa Dixon, who's making her UFC debut uh, off of two wins during her stretch with the Aries FC scene, she looks to be the goods. You know, I like what I see from her. Specifically with her ability to close the pocket, get the fight to the ground, and just... I've seen so many uh, instances where there's scrambles or throws or where she's being taken down, where she does a great job of readjusting her hips and ensuring that she ends up getting into the dominant position over her opponent, who might even be the one that initiated the takedown. Uh, she has great cardio. She's a, uh, great on top. She does a great job in terms of riding her opponents, uh, transitioning from position to position, landing big shots from on top, more often than not, you know, finding that TKO from that top position, but also doesn't mind going a full 50 minutes if that's what's required to get her hand raised at 32 years old she's kind of on the you know closer to the end of her peak in a in a way especially at this weight class 
Um, but I still think she has the chops to go out there and get a couple of solid wins uh, in this UFC bantamweight division. And I think it starts with this weekend over Irene Alexiva. So unless there's some sort of Hail Mary shot that uh, Alexiva gets a club and drum or a club and sub type of situation, I fully expect Dixon to go out there and control this fight for at least a round and a half, two rounds, and then eventually find a finish in the latter half of this fight while Alexiva is slowing down starting to wear it, showing the wear and tear. I expect Dixon to posture up, land some ground and pound, and get her out of there late. So give me Dixon by finish. Next up, we got a lightweight matchup between the very active Terrence McKinney as he comes into his fourth fight inside the octagon this year, third in the last three months. Uh, He's going up against Brendan Marote, who makes his short notice UFC debut after uh, McKinney's original opponent fell through. Uh, McKinney bounced back after a two-fight losing streak earlier this year with a win over Mike Breeden back in, uh, I believe it was August. Um, big win from there, knocking him out in uh, 85 seconds. And that just goes to show what kind of style McKinney has. This guy is a kill-or-be-killed fighter. He goes out there finishes opponents early or he starts slowing down in the fourth fifth minute of a fight and then ends up getting finished by his opponent 19 of his 20 fights have finished under one and a half rounds that is absolutely insane the other fight that 20th fight went into the third round but got finished in the first minute of the third round uh the guy's a firecracker early in his fights he has big power he's very explosive and he's very fast which is why he's able to get get these opponents out of there quickly because they're not expecting him to be as fast as he is even when he takes fights to the ground with the wrestling background that he has he does a great job in terms of advancing to a dominant position and either finding the choke or the TKO on the ground. But his cardio is such a big issue that it's so hard to trust a guy who's usually minus 500, minus 600, especially if he's unable to get that early finish. I get it. He's taking on a short notice fighter here, but you can't trust a guy that has as bad of a gas tank as McKinney does. It's usually best to either take him by round one or take his under one and a half in case his opponent is able to go out there, survive that early couple minutes, and then get their own finish as McKinney starts to slow down. On the flip side, for Brendan Marot, coming in on short notice on a three-fight winning streak, he's only fought twice since 2020, uh, took an extended layoff after the whole COVID issue. Uh, he's 26 years old, still young, trains with the New England cartel guys. Uh, I believe he competed on the Looking for a Fight episode that Dana was in uh, Massachusetts for, and um, uh, I guess he impressed enough to get on their radar so to to get the short notice opportunity when it showed itself. He's a decent striker. His grappling leaves a lot to be desired because he doesn't mind chasing the grappling aspect, but he seems to get overzealous a lot in these positions, often giving up position, chasing submissions or finishes, allowing his opponent to get into dominant position and get off on better strikes and possibly even beating him. But, you know, that style is not going to work against the higher level guys in the UFC so here's to hoping that he's kind of fixed that aspect of his game his only loss came to Adley Edwards who is a lowly Bellator guy who was on a two-fight losing streak at this moment in time and that's a guy that goes out there and utilizes a grapple heavy approach in his fights so that's probably how uh Marota ended up losing his fight I'm expecting McKinney to be too strong, too powerful, too fast for him early on in this matchup. But like I said, if Marot is able to survive that early on slot, he could potentially come back and get the finish in his own right. So I'd be leaning more so McKinney round one, under one and a half, eating that chalk, anything up to minus 300 or so. Because um, it 
19 of 20 fights. Like, this guy proves that under one and a half in his fights are must-bet spots. And I feel like this is one of those spots once again. But I'll take McKinney, McKinney round one, but nothing to do with that minus 600 money line. Cardio, way too questionable. All right, moving on to the women bantamweight division. We got Tenera Lisboa going up against Ravina Oliveira. Lisboa made her UFC debut last time around and put on a solid performance against Jessica Rose Clark. She utilized good takedown defense and superior striking and then eventually superior jiu-jitsu in the third round where she's able to lock up a rear naked choke and get the submission victory. She comes from a Muay Thai background and that showcases when you see her striking and getting into her flow state. However, she also does a great job in terms of taking her opponents to the ground finding submissions and utilizing that top pressure to control her opponents until she can find that finish she's been actively competing in grappling tournaments especially to round out that aspect of her game as it continues to take steps up in competition and i believe at this point in time she also holds a bjj purple belt on the flip side for Ravina Oliveira, she is on a, I believe, six-fight winning streak at this point in time. Her last loss came back in 2018 from an Ezekiel choke, but she has been facing very, very low-level competition. I believe the combined record of her opponents outside of the last one she fought was one and three, with five of them not even having a single professional MMA fight. She looks clearly much better than these fighters, so it's tough to tell how she's going to fare against fighters that are much more complete, which will actually provide resistance and will challenge her in the grappling realm, which is where she seemed to struggle in the past. She is a fighter similar to Lisboa, who came from a striking background, who's been working on her ground game, but it's tough to really tell how good her ground game is considering the lack of competition she's been fighting on the regional scene. I don't understand the signing from the UFC. This seems more of a fighter that should have to prove themselves on the contender series, but she seems to have a gimmick. You know, she's the Brazilian Wonder Woman uh, and she has a bunch of finishes on her record. But again, looking into those finishes, it's very sketchy considering the lack of competition she's been facing. I'm going to go with Lisboa here. I think she's far more complete. She's the better striker. She shows better technique and more crisp striking, even though Oliveira comes from a striking background as well. And I think Lisboa is far far more ahead in terms of her grappling improvements than what Oliveira has been making as of late. Minus 315, a little bit wide to trust somebody so early in their UFC career, but I feel like she has all the advantages in this matchup and should still be able to go out there and get the win here, possibly even by submission. All right, moving over to the featherweight division, we got the damage. Darren Elkins going up against TJ Brown. We'll start off on the Darren Elkins side, who's 39 years old, uh, ha- is surprisingly 3-2 and two in his last five fights, but the two losses that he's been suffering, he's been absolutely getting pieced up and getting worked pretty badly. Obviously, the second last loss was to Cub Swanson, who showed no respect to Darren Elkins in the striking room, and he went out there and absolutely blistered him on the feet, eventually finishing him halfway through that first round. Jonathan Pierce absolutely demolished Darren Elkins in the grappling room and did some great work from that top position. It was surprising that the the referee didn't stop that fight at certain moments and the fact that Elkins actually ended up seeing the judges scorecards but it's obvious what we're getting with Elkins at this point in time his durability which I believe is on the verge of cracking like I feel like one he's going to start to turn to Chuck Liddell and the fact like even a jab will start to drop him and he's going to be able to get put out that way uh, but if he has a solid grappling advantage over his opponents that's where he ends up winning 
fights like the Eduardo Garagori fight or the Tristan Connolly fight where he can out-wrestle these guys, that's how he still wins his fights. But he's way too slow on the feet. He doesn't. He was never really a good technical striker to begin with. He only really leaned on his durability to get most of his wins early on and become a fan favorite the way that he did. He's in for a tough time here against TJ Brown. Unless TJ Brown decides to stretch this fight out, take it into the third round because he's a guy that has shown cardio issues in the past and that's where Elkins could potentially prevail in this fight. However, I feel like TJ Brown, who is normally a grappler, a guy that normally likes to take his opponents to the ground, grind on them, eventually finding that submission or just grinding them out over 15 minutes to win a decision... I feel like he's just going to bite down on his mouthpiece knowing that he's the faster, younger, more powerful striker. Just land big on Elkins and let's just get him out of there. What's the point in trying to play with fire in terms of trying to grind out Elkins? I don't know if Brown will be able to submit him. Elkins is very good with the submission defense and being able to stay out of too much trouble while on the mat, just as we saw in the Jonathan Pierce fight. So why... Why would Brown want to put himself into hot water in case this fight does reach the third round where Elkins likely has a better gas tank? I feel like we'll see Brown bite down on that mouthpiece, throw with big shots in the early going here, and likely get a first-round stoppage. So rather than taking the chalk on TJ Brown, I feel the way for him to look that number is going to be with a stoppage of some sort. So taking him to win inside the distance at plus 165... Probably a good way of taking this chalky spot and making it a plus money spot and hoping that he goes out there and gets the finish. So I'm going to go with TJ Brown here, hoping that he comes in with the right game plan of trying to finish Elkins early and coming through with it because he is more than capable of doing that. All right, next up, we got probably my favorite fight on the card, the one that I'm looking forward to the most here, going down in the bantamweight division. We got Christian Rodriguez going up against Cameron Simon. Now, we'll start off on the Rodriguez side, who's riding a two-fight winning streak after suffering his only loss against Jonathan Pierce in his short notice UFC debut up a weight class. That's the only reason I believe he lost that fight. And... He was having a pretty good, you know, some good moments in that fight against Pierce, making it difficult for Pierce to come through as big of his underdog or as big of a favorite as Pierce was that night. But I think that Rodriguez, he is so clean. From from the days you watch his amateur fights where he looks like a professional, throwing in solid combinations, showcasing good discipline and technique from his striking to his grappling to his jujitsu, the guy has it all. He's 25 years old. He showcased in his last fight against Raul Rosas Jr. that he is somebody that should be taken seriously. He shucked off all the takedown attempts and the submission attempts of Rosas Jr. and got off in his own strikes and was doing big damage from striking to the grappling. And he looked like the goods. He is very, very well skilled. He originally started training out with the uh, Rufus Sport guys. He spent a, a training camp, I believe, down at Fight Ready. But now he's back up in Rufus Sport as well, where I feel like he can continue to showcase his improvements. And slowly turning to this budding star that could potentially be in the title contention by the ending of 2024 if he stays active enough. He's going up against 22-year-old 9-0 Cameron Simon, who is one of Drickus Duplessis' main training partners. We've seen Simon go out there and finish two of his three UFC fights thus far, but the one issue seems to be with him is that he always gets a point taken away. In two of his three fights, he's gotten a point taken away, but luckily he's been able to finish one of his fights and then obviously went to a, a decision with uh, Mano Martinez, but still went out there and won the second rounds, uh, second and third round decisively enough to win that decision but this is a kid that similar to Duplessis utilizes his physical strengths uh, and capabilities more so than his 
technical strengths to end up getting his wins. And that's going to cause him to run into trouble against the better technical fighters who he's potentially fighting this weekend. Simon has decent striking. His takedown defense is kind of questionable, but he does a good job in terms of staying after off of his back and eventually working back to his feet when he does get taken down. But that's going to get harder and harder for him to do as he continues to work up the ranks. And I feel like he's going to feel that this weekend against Christian Rodriguez. I believe Rodriguez has all the skill advantages in this matchup. The only thing that I'd give Simon an advantage of uh, in is the fact that he's probably more athletic, more physical, and he should be able to stay... um you know, like a little ball of energy more than Rodriguez, but I feel like Rodriguez will still come out landing the better shots, getting more control time, possibly even finding a finish in this matchup. So minus 145 on Rodriguez. Skill-wise, I feel like we're getting a pretty big discount here considering that Simon is a little bit hyped in his own right, uh, has an undefeated record. And if people remember the contender series, because I remember this, I, I cashed on Simon as a plus 210 underdog against Josh Wang Kim. People weren't that high on him. But now he has a couple UFC wins, doing some of them in spectacular fashion. I feel like people are forgetting that they had a lower bar set for him before he had these couple UFC wins. Now he's fighting a real guy. Now he's fighting a guy in Christian Rodriguez that will take advantage of some of the mistakes that he makes in the technical realm. And that's where Rodriguez should be able to come out on top. So give me Rodriguez and I'm going to take Rodriguez by decision. Next up, we got a rematch of a, uh, a fight that took place last month between Edgar Chires and Daniel Lacerda. This will now be at a catch weight so that they don't have to cut weight once again. They both made the weight last time around, so no need to go through those semantics once again. Uh, I'll go through this one pretty quickly because the last fight we saw, I believe, two and a half minutes of action until Chires was eventually able to lock up a, a dart stroke, I believe it was or an anaconda choke, and then the referee stopped the fight prematurely. I will say this in defense of the referee, who ended up going up there and apologizing to Lacerda, but, like, I get it. You're you're trying to defend the choke. Sometimes you have to kind of either go limp or, like, showcase, or, or just be too relaxed that the guy putting on the choke eventually wears himself out. But, like, the, the referee was checking Lacerda and Lacerda was always replying to him with his hand but there was a certain point where Lacerda's arm just dropped and it looked like he w went limp so maybe the referee should have checked one more time like just to see if the guy was actually there um, but he stopped the fight immediately as soon as he saw Lacerda go limp and the choke looked kind of tight if I'm being honest um, once he saw Lacerda go limp he didn't realize that Lacerda was doing that just to relax so that he could try to get out of the choke. It looked like Lacerda went out. So I don't fault the referee too much for that, uh, other than the fact that he should have maybe tested the hand one more time after he saw it go limp or perceived that it went limp. Um, regardless, we saw a different approach from Lacerda in that fight. We saw him go out there and not go balls to the wall as we're used to seeing. Similar to a Terrence McKenney type of fighter, this was a guy that used to go out there, get early finishes, or end up gassing himself out and getting finished. He's winless in the UFC. You know, 0-4, possibly could have been 0-5 if Chiras actually completed that choke. But he went out there and he tried to use a grapple-heavy approach and try to slow the fight down and open up submission opportunities for himself on the mat. But I think that's not a good look for a guy in Ch uh, Lacerda who 
still has a gas tank issue. Just because he's going to be looking to take fights to the ground doesn't mean that he'll have a better gas tank. It will allow him to prolong his gas tank, but it's not going to help him as it's going to be tougher to maintain cardio when you're grappling and wrestling and try to hold a guy on the mat. So I think that Chirez, even if he didn't get the submission and Lacerda was able to go out there and just continue to control Chirez for the rest of that first round, I believe you would have saw Lacerda come out a little bit more gas in the second round and Chirez would have been able to pick it up and got him and gotten him out of there. And that's kind of the, the way that I'm leaning for this matchup. I was very confident in the under one and a half last time around just because Daniel Lacerda is Daniel Lacerda. But if he's going to go out there and try to implement another grapple-heavy approach, I think that we'll see Chirez deal with it. You know, he might get taken down. He might get controlled. But I think that we'll see him fight off enough, provide enough resistance so that he can reap the fruits of his labor in the second and third round, finding a submission, finding a finish as Lacerda starts to slow down. So I'll be honing in more so on Chirez round two, Chirez round three, rather than the big chalky price on Chirez. Um, I still believe this fight finishes. Not so confident on the under one and a half anymore, but I feel like Lacerda may be early, but I'd be surprised considering that Tatsuro Tyra was unable to get uh, Chirez out of there, and Tyra is a pretty educated jiu-jitsu player in his own right. Uh, I think Chirez goes down in the first round in terms of loses that round, but then comes back in round two and finds the finish. So I'm going to go Chirez. Chirez by finish. Let's hone in on those round props. All right, we got a great matchup here in the middleweight, middleweight division as short notice Andre Petrovsky steps in to take on the one of the human highlight reels, I'd say, and Michel Pidera. Starting off on the Petrovsky side, the guy's on a five-fight winning streak since falling short on the ultimate fighter and now uh, seems to have turned his career around. He only has one official loss on his record who came to, or which came to Aaron Jeffrey, who's thriving in the Bellator scene right now. But Petrovsky normally goes out there, looks to utilize his Brazilian jiu-jitsu black belt, taking his opponents to the ground, smashing them from on top, or controlling them and winning decisions. Now, one issue that I've had with Petrovsky in the past, similar to Daniel Lacerda, is a guy that has cardio issues. Uh, but he's proved me wrong a couple times now. You're talking about a guy who's had who had back-to-back third-round finishes and has had back-to-back decision wins now as well. But his body language still does not look the greatest late in fights. And that's where I have an issue. Because if he's going to go up against a guy that can actually provide legit resistance in the third round, potential finishing resistance in the third round, he's going to find himself in big trouble. We saw Jared Mearshart have his best round in the third round against Petrovsky, but he just didn't have the knockout power or the ability to put Petrovsky in bad positions to finish him. Michel Pereira, that's a guy that will potentially take advantage of Petrovsky, who's slowing down, being you know throwing those half-fast one-twos down the middle just to stay in the fight, utilizing his superior agility, power, speed, just to go out there and find that big knockout over Petrovsky. But Petrovsky is still going to be dangerous in the early parts of this matchup, which is why I'm kind of leaning with the under more than anything, which I believe is still around plus money. I could be off on that, but if it's anything better than minus 150, minus 170, I feel like it's still a damn good spot because we could get an early finish from Petrovsky here, who is clearly a disappearing jiu-jitsu player. But if this gets into the second and third rounds... That's where Pereira could start to maybe stuff the takedowns, make it more difficult for Petrovsky to get in on the hips and land these big shots that will hurt Petrovsky and potentially put him away. Refer the Brian Battle fight that we saw uh, Petrovsky lose and even the Aaron Jeffrey fight that we saw Petrovsky lose. Obviously, Petrovsky is much better than he was back then, but I still feel he's going to struggle with these big guys. Like Pereira is a huge guy, six foot one. He's just as big, just as tall as uh, Petrovsky and he's the far superior uh, striker as well. So, 
I'm a little bit queasy about taking minus 220 on Pereira in case Petrovsky has good enough uh, success with his grappling early on in this matchup, maybe even locking up a submission. But I feel like violence would be the best way to go for this fight. I feel like it's going to be Pereira who ends up getting a late stoppage. So I'll probably hone in on that round three Pereira spot. But who knows, maybe Petrovsky proves me wrong once again and gets a submission in the third round. But I'm going to go with Pereira here. Not so hot on the money line, but I feel like violence is going to be the spot. It's going to be Pereira by third round knockout. Next up, the fight that I'm second most excited about after Rodriguez and, or sorry, Rodriguez and Simon. We got a bantamweight matchup between Jonathan Martinez and Adrian Yanez or Yanez, as he wants to be pronounced now. Uh, starting off on the Martinez side, five-fight winning streak ever since getting knocked out by Davy Grant in mid-2021. Since then, he's beaten uh, Ziad Lazisfili, uh, Alejandro Perez, Vince Morales, Cub Swanson, and then most recently, Saeed Nurmagomedov earlier this year. That was a very close fight. Could have gone either way, but I think Martinez did enough to grind that fight out. Martinez, at his best, is a fighter that utilizes movement and his kicking game, whether it's to the body or to the legs, to really hurt his opponents so that he can let his hands go afterwards. I still have some questions in terms of his durability, though, against guys that can land cleanly enough against him. He's tried to implement a grapple-heavy approach in some of his fights, I believe in the Cubs-Swanson fight or the Vince Morales fight, but we don't see him really get that much control time from that top position. He lands the takedowns, but is unable to keep his opponents on the mat, but it's a good thing for him to add to his game so that he can open up more striking possibilities for himself as opponents start to think, okay, this guy might actually shoot on me this time, so maybe he can get off on a couple more strikes. Obviously, he has a great head coach in Mark Montoya, and he is looking career best at this point in time as he enters his prime. On the flip side, with Adrian Yanez, suffered his first UFC defeat when he lost to Rob Font last time around earlier this year, where he got knocked out in the first round. But that wasn't without some adversity for Rob Font, as we saw the clear damage that Font was running in that matchup, as Yanez was still landing big shots of his own. I'm surprised that the public switched on Giannis so much after that matchup as he was around that plus 110, plus 105 range earlier this week in this matchup. But it seems like the public is starting to come in on him, which is why he's run even money at this point in time. But he's still a very skilled fighter at 29 years old. His boxing combinations, very tight, crisp, tough for a lot of opponents to deal with, especially with the volume in which he throws. He throws with solid power as well. And that's where I think the difference maker is going to come here in this matchup with Martinez. Martinez does not have a good enough grappling game to stay away from the striking of Yanez. And I feel like Yanez can go out there and counter the kicking game of Martinez and throw down the pipe anytime Martinez tries to throw. And I think one of those shots is going to set up a combination that Yanez can eventually follow up with and eventually get Martinez out of there with. Um, I think Martinez is the better kicker of the two, but I think that Yanez is the better boxer of the two. And as long as Yanez can kind of continue to move forward, crash the pocket, keep that high tight guard, and throw in combinations, I think he's going to find that chin of Martinez and put him clean out. So I was more than happy to take the underdog shot here on Yanez. And uh, again, surprised at the short-sightedness of the 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 betting community um, flipping on a guy so quickly like Yanez. I get it. Martinez has momentum on his side, but stylistically speaking, this is a good fight for uh, Adrian to get back on track. So give me Yanez, and I think he gets the knockout probably within the first two rounds. All right, that brings us to our flyweight co-main event between Jennifer Maya and Viviani Araujo. Starting off on the Maya side, who's on a two-fight winning streak, most recently handing Casey O'Neill her first professional loss. That happened earlier this year as we saw Maya go out there and just batter O'Neill on the feet. 
I believe they were neck and neck in terms of significant strikes landed, but it was clear that Maya had more pop on her shots, which ended up causing more damage, which ended up causing the referees to score those rounds in her favor. Uh, I expected O'Neill to shoot more than one takedown that night, as it was actually Maya who was more insistent on terms of looking for uh, takedowns, but that fight primarily played out in the striking realm. And it showed that O'Neill was still a little bit too raw to be taking on a fighter as experienced as Jennifer Maya. You're talking about a fighter that has over 30 fights of experience at this point in time compared to the nine that O'Neill had going into that fight. Uh, Jennifer, I believe she just turned 35, is still a solid out you know she's a fighter with the bjj black belt a muay thai background as well and does a great job in terms of throwing more than one strike whenever she decides to let her hands go she does a great job with her footwork traversing the cage utilizing the outside uh ring of or the 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 warning track of the cage and then eventually closing that distance and letting go on two three four five uh punch combinations which makes it hard for her opponents to kind of react to her and you know she doesn't have many finishes on her record at all but she does a good job in terms of inflicting damage and making it look good enough for the judges. On the flip side, we got Viviani Odujo, who has absolutely fumbled the bag in terms of uh, the type of potential I expected from her when she initially made her UFC debut. She is now 2-3 and three over her last five fights, although her last two losses came to Amanda Hibas and now champion Alexa Grasso. You see that when she starts to face resistance, it's tough for her to make a comeback. Um, she's fast explosive and powerful early in fights but as the second and third round start to come around and if she's not having her way completely she starts to slow down she starts to give up on herself allowing her opponent to get ahead on numbers and, and strikes and even on the mat you know she's good in that top position early in fights but she's unable to secure it later on in fights and she doesn't do the most work off of her back either looking for submissions reversals or get-ups and i feel like that's where she's going to end up having some problems here against jennifer Meyer, who is far more experienced and has way better level of competition i like jennifer Meyer in this fight as i think that she'll be able to withstand the striking uh slight disadvantage that she'll have early on in this matchup she could be the one looking for takedowns and trying to control Araujo from that top position to wear on her utilize uh, the superior cardio that she has so that she can open up and just uh make a solid uh um, statement for the judges especially with her volume and the power that she's going to continue to land with in the second and third rounds so give me maya here i think she uh again after a close first round she should should start to pull away in the second and third rounds where she should be able to get her hand raised by decision and that brings us to the featherweight main event that we have on tap here between 13 and 2 sodiq yusuf and 23 and 11 edson barboza We'll start off on the Sodiq Yusuf side, who's been on the sidelines now for over a year dealing with herniated disc issues that he has uh, had to rehab from. He's finally more than ready, and it seems like him playing, um, you know, being patient has helped him out in terms of earning this main event slot as the calendar has worked out in his favor. Um, but he's taken a solid step up in competition compared to the last guy that he fought. He went out there and finished Don Shaness in less than a minute, and now he's taken on veteran of the UFC, Edson Barboza. There's a huge experience difference here in terms of the fact that Edson Barboza made his UFC debut when Sodiq Youssef was only 17 years old. That was three years before Sadiq Youssef ever had an amateur MMA fight. Barboza was uh, a, a week after Sadiq Youssef made a professional MMA debut. Edson Barboza the following week ended up going out there and beating Anthony Pettis over 15 minutes. Former L, uh, UFC lightweight champion Anthony Pettis. You know, the types of guys that Barboza has 
faced the four fighting Sadiq Yusuf, just insane, right? The Donald Cerrone's, um, uh, MX, the other names are escaping me at this moment in time, uh, Anthony Pettis, um, crazy. But that can also work in the reverse, right? You're talking about a 37-year-old Edson Barboza. A Barboza that went out there and knocked out Billy Corntillo, but it was obvious that we knew that Barboza had a significant striking advantage over Corntillo. But he's starting to slow down. You see it in the Giga Chikadze fight. You see it in the Bryce Mitchell fight. The advantages he has in this matchup against Sodiq Yusuf is his experience, potential cardio issue or cardio advantage, um, and volume. I think that's where he'll be able to edge Yusuf should this fight go the full five rounds. But I think the patience in which Yusuf strikes with, the power in which Yusuf strikes with, could potentially work against Barboza. I feel like we'll see Sadiq play a very calculated approach here, waiting for those openings against Barboza and eventually landing a big shot and putting him away. But I think that Yusuf is one of those guys that's tough to back at chalk considering more often than not, he has a low-volume approach in his fights. And more often than not, relies on either knockdowns or knockouts to get his fight or to get his wins. And I feel like it's going to get be hard for him to do it early here. But I think as Barboza slowly starts to slow down, Yusuf might be able to open up and land some big shots of his own and potentially find the finish. But in that minus 170, minus 180 range for Yusuf, I don't like it. Uh, you know, he's had a huge experience disadvantage in this matchup. He's coming off a long layoff. Who knows what that herniated disc is going to do to him or the recovery of that. It's it's a big question mark here. I think he eventually finds the big shot as Barboza starts to slow down, as Barboza is aging, as his durability is just not as great anymore. That's where I think that Yusuf eventually takes advantage of him and finds a knockout, but I'd rather pass on this fight more than anything. So give me Yusuf and Yusuf by knockout. There you guys go. Breakdowns on all 11 or 12. One of those two numbers. Uh, 12 fights. For this UFC Vegas 81 card. A reminder, there is Cage Warriors going down this weekend as well. I have written breakdowns for that on the Patreon. Check that out in the link in the description below. And I will be back on Monday uh, to drop the UFC 294, 297, 294. UFC 294 breakdowns for you guys. Big card in Abu Dhabi that just got a major shakeup in the co-main event and main event as we have Alexander Volkanovsky getting his rematch against Islam Mahachev and then obviously Kamar Usman stepping in to fight Hamzat Chimaev. Don't forget, I also have segments dropping for this week's content in terms of the uh, top three lock of the night, top three dog of the night, uh, Lockheed two-step, Lockheed Trinity, and three best uh, money, uh, three best prop pets as well. So make sure you guys check that out. Appreciate all the love. Appreciate all the support. Hit that like and subscribe. And I'll see you guys later. Peace.